0: Chapter 4 Ever since Marissa Fitz and Tom Rotwell conducted their celebrated investigations way back in the first years of the problem, finding the source of haunting has been central to every agent's job. Yes, we do other stuff as well. We help create defenses for worried households, and we advise individuals on on their personal protection. We can rig up salt traps in gardens, lay iron strips on thresholds, hang boards above cradles, and stock you with any number of lavender sticks, ghost lights, and other items for day-to-day security. But the essence of our role, the reason for our being, is always the same. To locate the specific place or object connected to a particular member of the restless dead. No one really knows how these sources function. Some claim the visitors are actually contained within them. Others others that Others, that they mark points where the boundary between worlds have been worn thin by violence or extreme emotion. Agents don't have time to speculate either way. We're too busy trying to avoid being ghost-touched to worry about philosophy. As Lockwood said, a source might be many things. The exact location of a p- crime for house, perhaps, or an object intimately connected to that sudden death or maybe a prized possession of the visitor when alive. Most often though, 73% of the time, of course, according to research conducted by the Redwell Institute, it's associated with what the Fitz Manual calls pers- personal organic remains. You can guess what that means. The point is, you will ne- you never know until you look, which is what we're doing now. Five minutes in, we're, we almost tri- stripped the central slab of wall. The wallpaper was de- decades old. Old, its dry and turned to dust. We could slip our knives under it and cut away great curls with ease. Some practically disintegrated in our hands. Others flopped over and flopped over our arms like giant folds of skin. The plaster of the wall beneath was pinkish white and mottled, speckled with orange and speckled with orange-brown fragments of paste. It reminded me of spam. Lockwood took one of his lanterns and made a closer inspection running his hand along the uneven servants. Service. surface. He moved the lantern at different heights and angles, watching the play of shadows on the wall. There was a cavity here at some point, he said. A big one. Someone's filled it in. See how the plaster is a different color loose? I see. Think we can break into it? Shouldn't be too difficult, he hefted at his crowbar. Everything quiet? I glanced over my shoulder. Beyond the little circle of lantern light, the rest of the room was invisible. We were an illuminated island in a sea of blackness. I listened and heard nothing. But there was steadily mounting pressure in the silence. I could feel it building in my ear. We're okay for the moment, I said, but it won't last long. Better get on with it, then. His bar swung, Crunched into the plaster, a shower of pieces cascaded to the floor. Twenty minutes later, the front of our clothes were spotted white. The toe-caps of our booth, smothered by the heap heap of fragments, ranged beneath the wall. The hole we'd made was half my height and wide as a man. There was a rough dark wood behind it, studded with old nails. Some kind of boards, Lockwood said. Sweat gleamed on his forehead. He spoke with forced carelessness. The front of a box or or cupboard or something looks like it fills the whole wall space, Lucy. Yeah, I said. Mind the filings. He'd stepped back too far, kicking them out of position that was what we had to focus on. Keep to the rules. Keep ourselves safe. If we'd had the chains, it wouldn't have been so difficult. But filings were treacherous, their line easily broken. I crouched down, got the brush, and with small methodical movements, began to fix the break. Above me, Blockwood took a deep breath. Then came the soft soft crack of his crowbar biting into the wood. With the line prepared, I scooped up scooped away several handfuls of plaster that threatened to spill over the barrier at the front. This is done, I remained there, crouching, the fingertips of one hand pressed firmly on the floorboards. I stayed like that a minute, maybe more. When I got to my feet, Lockwood had done some damage to one of the planks, but he hadn't broken through. I tapped him on the arm. What? He struck the wall again. She's back, I said. The sounds had been so faint that, that, at first, they had merged into the noise we made, and it was only the vibrations in the floor that I noticed them at all. But even as I spoke, they began to rise in volume, three quick impacts, the last, a dreadful soft, hard thud, then silence, before the sequence started over. It was an endless loop, identical each time, the sound memory of Mr. Hope falling down the stairs. I told Lockwood what I heard. He nodded brusquely. Okay, doesn't change anything. Keep watch and don't let it unsettle you. That's what she's aiming for. She recognizes you're the weak one. I blinked. Sorry? What are you saying? Luce, this isn't the time. I just mean emotionally. What? That's, like, that's any better. He took a deep breath. All I'm saying is, is that your kind of talent is much more sensitive than mine. But ironically, that very sensitivity very sensitivity leaves you more exposed to supernatural influences which in cases like this might be a problem okay I stared at him for a minute there I thought you'd been listening to George Lucy, I have not been listening to George we turned away from each other, Lockwood to the wall me to face the room I drew my rapier, waited The the study was dark and still thud, thud Thud, went the echo in my ears. A cracking sound told me Lockwood had the crowbar wedged between the boards. He was pushing sideways with all his strength. Wood creaked, black nails shifted. Very slowly, one of our lanterns began to die. It flickered, faltered, became pale and small, as if something was crushing it out of its life. Even as it, even as it did so, the other lantern flared. The balance of light in the room shifted. Our shadows swung oddly across the floor. A gust of cold air blew through the study. I heard papers moving on the desk. You'd think she w- she'd want us to do this. Lockwood panted. You'd think she w- she'd want to be found out on the landing. A door banged. doesn't don't, doesn't seem so. I said other others, other doors slammed elsewhere in the house, one after the other, seven in a row. I heard the distant sound of breaking glass. "'Boring!' Lockwood snarled. "'You've done that. Try something else.' There was a sudden silence. "'How many times,' I said. "'Have I told you not to taunt them? It never ends well.' "'Well,' she was repeating herself. "'Get a seal ready. We're almost there.' and down, riveted in my bag. In the pockets we carry in the pockets we carry a wide range of products designed to neutralize any given source. All of them are made by made of those key metals visitors can't buy. Silver and iron. Shapes and decorations vary. There are boxes, tubes, nails and nets, pendants, bands and chains. Rotoles and fits have their specially stamped with this theirs their specially stamped with their company logos. While Lockwood uses ones that are simply, simple and unadorned, but the crucial thing is to select the right size for your visitor, minimum grade necessary to block its passage through. I chose a chain net, delicate but potent, made of tightly fused lengths of silver. It was so carefully folded when shake when shaken loose, it could be draped over objects of considerable size, but for now I could clasp it in my palm. I stood and checked out. I checked out progress on the wall. Lockwood had succeeded in forcing out one of the boards a little way. Behind it was a sledge, wet, slender wedge of darkness. He heaved and strained, leaning back, grimacing with effort. His boots had dug perilously closed to a ridge of iron fillings. "It's coming," he said. Good. I turned back to face the room, where the dead girl stood beside me, just beyond the iron line. So clear was she, she might have been alive and breathing, gazing out upon a sunlit day. The cold, dim light shone, shone full upon her, shone full upon her face. I saw her, and she must have been once, one go, before it happened. She was prettier than me, round cheeked, small nose, with full, with a full lip mouth and large imploring eyes. She looked like the kind of girl I'd always inst- instinctively disliked—soft and silly. Passive when it mattered, and when it didn't, reliant on her charms to get her way. We stood there head to head, her long hair blonde, my dark hair pale. Her long hair blonde, and my dark hair pale with plaster dust. She bare-legged in, she bare, she bare-legged in her little summer dress, me red nose and shivering in my skirt leggings and padded parka. Without the iron line and what it represented, we might have reached out and touched each other's faces. Who knows? Perhaps that's what she wanted. Perhaps that severance drove her rage. Her face was blank and without emotion, but the force of her fury broke against me like a wave. I raised the folded chain in a kind of ironic salute. In answer, bitter air whipped out out of the darkness, scouring my face, slapping my hair against my cheeks. It struck hard against the iron barrier, making the filing shift. I highly recommend finishing this, I said. Lockwood gave a gasp of effort, there was a crack as wood grains tore. All across the study came a sudden rustling, magazines flopping open, books moving, dusty papers lifting off their piles like flocks of rising birds. My coat was pressed against me, went howl around the margins of the room. The ghost girl's hair and dress were motionless. She stood staring through me like I was the one made of memory and air. Besides my boots, the fangs began to drift and scatter. Hurry it up, I said. Got it! Give me the seal! I turned as quickly as I dared. The key thing now was not to cross the iron line. I offered him to fold the folded net. Just as I did so, Lockwood gave a final heave upon the crow- crowbar and the board gave way, cracked across its width, near the bottom of our hull and ruptured forward, carrying with it two others that were nailed to it by connecting spurs of wood. The crowbar slipped from its recess and suddenly came free. Oh, no. Lockwood lost his balance. He fell sideways and would have tumbled right out of our circle had I no lunged across to steady him. We clung together for a moment, teetering above up, up, filings. Was- Thanks, Luce, Lockwood said. That was almost bad. He grinned. I nodded in relief at which the broken boards fell out toward us, revealing the contents of the wall. We'd known, of course we'd known, but it was still a shock, and shocks that make you both jerk backwards are never ideal when you're already off-balance, and the two of you are already on the brink. So it was that I didn't get much of a look inside the cavity before we toppled over together, arms locked, legs tangled, locked above, above and knee below, beyond the protection of the iron. But I'd seen enough, enough to have the image seared upon my mind. She still had her blonde hair, that was the same, though it was so smirched with soot and dust, so choked up with cobwebs, that it was impossible to tell where it finished or began. The rest was harder to recognize, a thing of bones, bared teeth, and shrunken skin, dark and twisted as burnt wood, and still propped snugly in the bed of bricks where it had rested maybe fifty years, the straps of the pretty summer dress hung loose upon the jutting bones. Orange yellow sunflowers glinted dimly without, within a shroud of webs. I hit the floor, the back of my head struck wood, and the dark was seared by light. Then Lockwood's weight drove down onto me, my breath bursting through my mouth. The brightness faded. My mind cleared. My eyes opened. I was lying on my back, with a silver chain net still clutched tightly in one hand. That was the good news. I'd also dropped my rapier again. Lockwood had already rolled off me and away. I rolled too, knelt back into a crutch, looked frantically for my blade. What did I see instead? A mess of iron filings, scattered by our fall. Lockwood kneeling, head down. Hair flopped forward, struggling to pull a sword clear off of his long, heavy overcoat, and the ghost girl floating silently above him. Lockwood! His head jerked up. His coat had gone twisted tight beneath his knees and was preventing access to his belt. He couldn't free his sword in time. The girl dropped low, trailing wreaths of other light. Long, pale hands stretched out towards his face. I tore a canister from my belt and hurled it without a thought. It passed straight through the stooping shape and struck the wall behind. The glass lid broke. Sheets of magnesium fire licked out and sliced across the girl who vanished in billowing plumes of mist. Lockwood threw himself sideways, iron sparks flipp- flickering in his hair. Greek fire is good stuff, no question. A mix of iron, magnesium, and salt hits her visitor two ways at once. Red-hot iron and salt cut through its substance, while the searing light of ignited magnesium causes its intolerable pain. But, and here's the snack, even though it burns out fast, it has a tendency to set other things on fire as well. Which is why the Fitzmanual advises against its use indoors, except in controlled conditions. The present condition involved a study filled with papers and and a very eventual spectre. Would you call that even the slightest bit controlled? Not really. Something something somewhere wailed with pain and fury. The wind in the study, perhaps, had had died back a little, suddenly redoubled. Burning papers ignited by the first surge from the canister were plucked aloft, blown directly at my face. I batted them away. Watched them whirl off, moved by something unseen. They blew in squalls across the room, landed on books and shelves, and on desks, on on desk and curtains, on curls of wallpaper, on bone dry files and letters, on dusty cushions on the chair. Like stars at dusk, hundreds of little fires linked into being. One after another, high, low and all around. Lockwood had risen to his feet, hair and coat, both smoking. He flicked his coat aside, and a flash of silver, the rapier was in his hand. His eyes were fixed past me on a shadowed corner of the room. Here, in the midst of whirling papers, a shape was starting to reform. Lucy, he his voice was hard to make out against the howling wind. Plan E, we follow Plan E. Plan E? What the devil was Plan E? Lockwood had so many, and it was hard to see straight with every other stack of magazines going up in flame, and those flames leaping higher And the way back to the landing suddenly blocked by smoke and flaring light. Lockwood! The door! No time. I'll draw her off. You do the source. Oh yes, that was Plan E, luring the visitor away from where the crucial action was. Already Lockwood was dancing through the smoke, moving with instant confidence toward the waiting shape. Burning fragments blew about his head. He ignored them, kept his rapier lowered at his side. He seemed unprotected. The girl made a sudden rush. Lockwood leaped back, rapier swinging at the last minute to parry an outstretched spectral hand. Her long blonde hair, blending with the smoke, curled around him from either side. He ducked and fainted. Slicing the mi- slicing the misty tendrils into nothing, his sword was a blur of movement. Safe behind its flashing steel, he steadily retreated, leading the ghost even farther from the chimney breast and the broken wall. In other words, giving me a chan- giving me my chance. I plunged forward, fighting against the raging wind. Air slammed into me, screaming with hu- a human voice. Sparks spat against my face. The breath, the breath was driven from my lungs. Flame rose. Ro- Flames rose upon me every side, reaching out as I passed by. The wrath of the air redoubled. I was slowed almost to a standstill, but ploughed my way onward, step by step. Beside the chimney the bookshelves had erupted into walls of flame. The trails of racing fire ran like mercury along the floor. Ahead was ahead of me the plaster surface swam with orange light. The hole itself was a pool of darkness. The object inside side it was scarcely visible. Behind the veil of webs I glimpsed glimpsed its lipless smile. It's never good to see such things directly. They distract you from the job. I shook the chain net loose, held it trailing in my hand, nearer and nearer, step by step. Now I was close. Now I could have looked at her if I'd chosen to, but I kept my eyes averted from her face. Saw the little spot spiders clustering on the cow webs cobwebs as they always do. I saw her bony neck, the flowery cotton dress gaping. I also saw a sudden glint of gold, something hanging beneath her throat, a little golden chain. I reached the hole, stood with the net held ready amid the roar of wind and fire, and just for a moment I hesitated, staring at the delicate golden necklace that hung there in the dark. It ended in a pendant of some kind, I could just see it sparkling in the ordered gap between her dress and bo- dress and bony chest. Once, that the girl li- girl's living hands had put it around her neck, thinking to make herself look lovelier for the day. And still, it hung there, decades later, and still it shone through the flesh beneath, though the flesh beneath was blackened, shrunken and dead. A rush of pity filled my heart. Who did this to you? I said. Lucy! Lockwood's cry rose above the howling wind. I turned my head, saw the ghost girl come rushing at me through the rising flames. Her face was blank, her eyes bored into mine. Arms were outstretched toward me as if, as if in greeting our embrace. It wasn't, the type of embra- it wasn't the type of embrace I fancied. Blindly, I thrust both hands in through the mass of cobwebs, sending the spiders racing. I... Th- thought sought to lower the net but it had caught on a snag of wood in the mouth of the hole the girl was almost upon me i gave frantic key of the splintered boat the sob i jerked the k- chain net over the dry soft dusty hair iron and silver folds dropped down across the head and torso encasing them as securely as a cage at once the girl's momentum stalled she was frozen in the air a sigh a moan a shudder her hair fell forward and hid her face her other light grew dim, dim, dimmer, gone. She winked out of existence as if she had never been. And with her, the force that filled the house went too. There was a sudden release of pressure. My ears popped. Wind died. The room was, dri- was full of burning scraps of paper, drifting slowly to the floor. Just like that, it's what happens when you successfully neutralize a source. I took a deep breath. Listened. Yes, the house was quiet. The girl had gone. Of course, when I say it was quiet, I only mean on a psychic level. Fires raged through the study. The floor was light. Smoke hid the ceiling. The piles of papers we dumped beside the door ro- roared white, and the whole landing was aflame. There was no way out in that direction. On the other side of the room, Lockwood waved urgently, pointing to the window. I nodded. No time to waste. The house was going up, but first, almost without thinking, turned back to the hole, reached under the net, and closing my mind to what else I touched there, grasped the little, golden, the little gold necklace, the one uncorrupted reminder of what the living girl had been. When I pulled, the chain came freely as, as if it had been in a clasp. I stuff it, stuffed it all, chain and pendant, webs and dust, and into the pocket of my coat. Then turning, I zigzagged between the fires to the desk below the window. Lockwood had already vaulted onto it, booting a stack of burning papers to the floor. He tried the window, no go, stiff or locked, it didn't matter which. He kicked it open, splintering the latch. I I jumped up beside him. For the first time in hours, we breathed in fresh, wet, foggy air. We knelt there on the window sill, side by side. Around us, curtains hissed, went up in flames. Out in the garden, our silhouettes crouched in a square of swirling light. You all right? Lockwood said. Something happened by the hole? No, nothing. I'm fine. I smiled wanly at him. Well, another case solved. Yes, won't Miss Hope be pleased? True, her house will have burned down, but at least it goes free. He looked at me. So, so... I peered over the sill, hunting vainly for the ground. It was too dark and too distant to be seen. It'll be fine, Lockwood said. I'm almost sure there are some whopping bushes down there. Good. That's a concrete patio. He patted my arms. Come on, Lucy, turn and drop. It's not like we have a choice. Well, he was right about that part. When I glanced back into the room... The flames had spread across the floor. They'd already reached the chimney breast. The hole and its contents were being greedily consumed by tongues of fire. I gave a little sigh. Okay, I said, if you say so. Lockwood grinned a sooty grin. In six months when I when have I ever let you down? I was just opening my mouth to start the list when the ceiling above the desk gave away burning spears of wood and chunks of plaster crashed down behind us. Something struck me on the back. It knocked me out and and over the windowsill. would tried to grab me as I fell. He lost balance. Our hands snapped shut on air. We seemed to hang there for a moment, suspended together between heat and cold, between life and death. Then we both toppled forward into the night, and there was nothing but rushing darkness all around.